0: What's up, Itawan? Man, it's really nice to see you guys from this perspective. You guys look very beautiful today. So um, it's my honor and privilege uh, to be a part of Women's Ministry Month and to share from the Word of God with you today. And um, why don't we just jump right into it. Uh, Today's scripture is going to come from Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 and 21. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to please open up to Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 uh, to 21. And the title of my message is, You took my spot. Ooh, <laughs> it'll make more sense as you go along, but that's the title. You took my spot. And the scripture comes from Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 21. When you have all arrived at that spot, please say amen. Amen. Okay, so why don't we all read it together uh, from the English Standard Version. One, two, three. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Amen. Amen, amen. So for those of you who might not be familiar with this passage, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, she came up to him with her sons. Him is talking about Jesus Christ, okay? And I'll be sort of unpacking the scripture a little bit more today, and you'll understand exactly why the title of this message is You Took My Spot, okay? So um, today I'm very, very excited to be preaching a word that is Actually, been on my heart ever since I've been a Christian. Okay, so I came to the faith at a relatively young age, and this is a word and a truth that I've been sort of wrestling with throughout my Christian walk. But it's a truth that has especially been highlighted to me since coming out to Korea. Okay, and the topic for today is called the zero sum game and the Christian life. Okay, so why don't you write that down? The zero sum game. Actually, why don't we have everyone say that all together? Everyone say, zero-sum game. Zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum game, okay? So for those of you who might not be familiar with this term, the zero-sum game is a term used very often in politics and economics, okay? And I remember using it a lot, actually, in graduate school. Some of you might know that uh, I was blessed to be able to get my master's in international relations while in Korea, and I'll just unpack this term for you. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, a zero sum game is a game or a situation in which whatever is gained by one side is lost by the other. Okay? Or according to the Lisa Kim English Dictionary, right, to cut straight to the chase, the zero sum game is a deception that there is a limited supply of blessings in life. Okay? And thus, each winner exists at the direct expense of a loser, okay? And the reason why I'm presenting this deception of the zero-sum game is because as believers, or even as those who are uh, just being introduced to Christianity or are exploring Christianity, I feel like it's very important for us to address and overcome the struggle of the zero-sum mentality. Okay? There is a strong competitive spirit here in the nation of Korea. You might have noticed it. Okay? And uh, this strong competitive spirit in Korea, it has catapulted this nation, actually, from abject poverty to the 12th largest economy that it is today. Okay? So there can be an, an advantage to being competitive, to having this like, winner-takes-all, winner-versus-loser zeal. But at the same time, I want to highlight to you the fact that there is a flip side to this winners versus losers mentality, okay? And this flip side is holding many people back, many, many people back, from really understanding the heart of God and the blessings that he wants to release to us, okay? And thus, um, in the midst of this scenario, I feel like, specifically for today, I feel like there's a new level of freedom that God wants to release for all of us, actually. And I feel that in the face of the natural human inclination to sort of compete and to hoard and to be competitive and just be the winner and winner-take-all, in the midst of all of this, I feel like the Lord really wants to release uh, the substance, the substance and the proof of the truth that there is never any lack of space or never any lack of resources, never any lack of blessings in the kingdom of God. Okay, so today I'm going to present to you uh, ways to fight against the zero-sum mentality. And I'm going to also propose to you ways that instead of being sucked up into this deception, how we can be established in the truth. Okay, so uh, that said, if you're ready to hear the word of the Lord today, please turn to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. ready. Turn to your other neighbor and say, bring it on, bring it on. on." I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So right off the bat, right off the bat, uh, before sharing with you my own uh, perception of the personal, the first tactic to sort of fight against the zero sum mentality, uh, let me just give you some context for the passage that I felt led uh, to sort of go uh, deeper into today. Okay. So if you look at the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus has been doing ministry on the earth for about three years. And he, Jesus, along with the 12 disciples whom he has raised up, uh, have been going around and they've been doing a lot of miraculous works. Okay, so they've been healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, all that amazing stuff we read in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Gospel. Okay, and it's a very glorious and powerful ministry, amen? Amen. But by the time you get to Matthew 20... Jesus reminds the disciples that what has been prophesied about him from the beginning is about to take place. Okay, so right before this passage that we read out together in Matthew 20, verse 20, right before that, he basically sits down to the disciples. He says, hey, check it out. Okay, let me just break it down for you. Okay, soon we're going to go into the city of Jerusalem. Okay, and I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of elders and of chief priests, And I'm going to be killed, but on the third day, I'll be raised to life. Okay? This is sort of a bombshell to be releasing on his disciples. I mean, Jesus, he sort of knew this from the beginning. It had been prophesied over him from the beginning. But he's sort of clarifying this matter to his disciples. And upon hearing the shocking and horrible news, we see in verses 20 and 21 that the mother of James and John, so James and John are two of the disciples, the mother of James and John, she kneels down at the feet of Jesus to humbly ask for an important favor. And she asked the Lord, she asked the Savior and Messiah this important favor, and she asked for her two sons to sit at the right and to the left of Jesus in the kingdom. Okay, this is her special favor. And to be pretty honest, this is a really ballsy request to lift up to our Savior and Lord, right? Think about it. I mean, Jesus has just shared of the suffering that he's about to endure, and he has shared that he's going to be killed, right? I mean, he's going to raise to life on the third day, but he's going to be killed. That's not easy, right? And in the midst of this, uh, this lady is trying to make sure that her two sons get a piece of his glory, okay? And this Lady, in my humble opinion, very much exemplifies the zero-sum mentality. Okay, so you can sort of imagine her logic. So there are 12 disciples, and there are only two seats flanking Jesus, right? One to the left and one to the right. So in the natural, the mother can assume that two disciples winning the coveted seats to the left and to the right this is going to automatically result in 10 disciples losing out. Okay? So there's not enough glory for everyone. That is what she's believing. That's what she's feeling in her heart. And therefore, this lady, she's going to make sure that her sons do not lose out on this glory. Okay? Which brings me to my first point, which is that in order to fight a zero sum mentality, we must, number one, understand the fact that. The zero-sum mentality is rooted in the deception of lack. Okay, so please write that down for point one if you're taking notes. The zero-sum mentality is rooted in the fact, is rooted in the deception of lack. Okay, and in order to fight against the zero-sum mentality, we need to learn how to overcome this deception. Okay, and I don't know about you, but the first time I came across this passage in depth while in Korea, I thought to myself, man, this mother of James and John, she, she has a lot of boldness. She has a lot of boldness, and she's literally, if you think about it in a Korean context, this, lit, this woman is literally like a Jewish ajima. okay? So I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term ajumma, but an ajumma is the term that we use in Korean for an older and very headstrong and very stubborn, goal-oriented lady. Okay, So you might be familiar with the figure of the ajumma, especially if you make frequent use of public transportation in this beloved city of Seoul. Okay, So you know those older female commuters in the subway, in the bus, and they just have a tendency to just push and shove their way into the subway to get that seat? That's the ajumma. Just to clarify, so we all know what an ajumma is and we honor the ajima okay we honor the ajima we know that um there are a large percentage of ajimas in Korea are actually christian by god's grace and there's a zeal on these ajimas to wake up uh, early in the morning and just seek the lord in the place of prayer releasing blessings over their family over the city and over this nation okay so we don't want to let these sort of cultural gaps and misunderstandings get in the way of us honoring our elders in this country but At the same time, let me be real. You know, as someone who was born and raised in America when I first got to Korea, it was really an interesting experience to interact with these ajummas and to really stay Christian during the course of my commune. okay? Okay. So, (laughs) So that being said, um, I sort of mentioned that the mother of James and John is sort of like a Jewish ajima,? right? That's how you can sort of uh, imagine her in your mind. And in this case, the Jewish Ajima is sort of like the Korean Ajima. She is willing to be slightly tactless. She's willing to be slightly abrasive in order to position herself to claim a coveted and important seat. Like literally, you know? And, uh, but this zeal and this competition is actually by, driven by the deception of lack. Okay, so let's look at the context. So James and John, they're two disciples of Jesus, okay? But they used to actually be fishermen. And they are not just ordinary fishermen. They're actually Jewish fishermen living under the rule of the Roman Empire. Okay? So therefore, things like savings, a 401K, a pension plan, right? uh, Status, connections, they don't really have access to any of that. And so in light of a very tough scenario... And in light of the fact that uh, these two sons don't have that much going for them apart from Jesus, okay, I can imagine the wheels turning in this mother's head. I can imagine her thinking, surely this Jesus, surely this Messiah, he's going to be a powerful political and military leader, okay, just like King David. So therefore, therefore, I'm sure that if I position my two handsome, beloved fisherman sons to be highly placed in his kingdom, right, to the left and to the right, then they can not only serve the Lord, which is so holy and wonderful, okay, but they're going to be set for life. They're going to be set for life. And it's the least that I can do as a mother. I can imagine her sort of thinking this, okay, make, let me make sure that my sons, let me make sure that they get the first dibs on that blessing, okay, let me make sure that my sons, they get the first dibs on that glory, okay, especially before the other disciples, before like Peter or Andrew or anyone else finds out. And what's funny to observe is that soon afterwards, okay, after this exchange, after the mother of James and John sort of presents this special favor and request to Jesus, the other ten disciples, they get wind of it, okay? And they get wind of what the mother tried to pull, and they start to get very indignant. They start to get very indignant. And in fact, they start to argue amongst themselves, okay, check it out, this is... This is really, in Korean, you use the word I don't know, what you, it's like very like, how would you say that in English? It's just like, it's flabbergasting, I guess, you know? That's, <laughs> I don't know, it's, just, it's very shocking. So, not only does this mother feel as if her sons are worthy of being seated to the left and to the right of Jesus, all of a sudden, the other 10 disciples, they join in on the party. They say, well, man, if you think James and John are able to sit up there with Jesus, right, I think I'm worthy too. They start to fight amongst each other. They start to quarrel amongst each other regarding who would be able to occupy this coveted seat, these two seats next to Jesus, okay? And it's really funny, sort of going along with the Ajima commuter or bus analogy. What's happening here, it's sort of what happens when you're waiting for the bus to come to church at Itawan, Okay, So for those of you who take the bus or the subway, uh, I think there's a bus up across the street from Taco Bell. And in my own experience, as one who lives in the neighborhood, this is what typically happens as you're waiting for the bus. Okay? We have a group of people, you are just chilling on the curb. The bus is nowhere in sight, mind you. Nowhere in sight. And all of a sudden, this ajima, she just very sneakily like walks up to claim her place at the very start of that line. So when the bus eventually does come, she's going to be able to go in, first and foremost. Okay. And what I've noticed, which is really interesting, is that this, this ajima she'll go up sort of sneakily, take her place in the beginning of that line... The bus is nowhere in sight, okay? The bus is nowhere in sight, but for some reason, everybody else, they feel, they feel compelled, so to sort of do likewise, you know? Like, have you ever experienced this before? I've experienced this many times, and it's, it's, always, it's always very confusing. Like, in the natural, it's very confusing, but as someone who needs to get a seat, I just follow along with the party, you know? The bus is nowhere in sight, it's gonna come in five minutes, but I need to take my place on that line so no one else takes my spot, right? Man, so it's really funny because that's basically what's happening here uh, in the context of the disciples, right? And being able to sit to the left and to the right of Jesus. And I want to assure you that this sort of scenario, this sort of zero-sum scenario, it's not, uh, and this sort of mentality playing out in life, it's not limited to just soul. Trust me, it is not limited to only the city, to only this nation, um, for those of you who've been, who've been able to travel around uh, Asia, you might notice uh, various manifestations of the zero-sum mentality, you know, like pushing and shoving in line or whatever. And it's not only, you know, specific to Asia. You see it in other regions as well. But even in America, Okay, even in America we see this come out. For example, how many Americans are here in this room right now? Let me just get a show of hands. Okay, and of the Americans, you know, God bless America, God bless all the nations, okay? But of the Americans, uh, how many of you are familiar with this tradition called Black Friday? Oh, ooh, yikes. You think those ashimas are bad? Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, so let me provide some context for the non-Americans in the room. So Black Friday, this is the day following American Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving is usually on a Thursday, and you get that entire weekend off. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So what happens on Black Friday is that all these stores, they have these insane sales. Everything is like half off, 25% off, whatever. It's, you, you have to save a lot of money if you do a lot of strategic, strategic shopping during Black Friday. But what's interesting to note is that some people they'll literally they'll line up outside the store and just camp out overnight. They'll bring their tents, they'll bring their grills. It'll be like a tailgate party in the parking lot of Walmart. It's like it's insane. Because people like these Americans, like us Americans, we're serious about getting that bargain, you know? Like you don't want to pay any more than you need to for that stuff, for that TV, for that microwave, whatever. But, so in the midst of all this competition, uh, unfortunately, this competition, this zero-sum mentality, this winner versus loser mentality, it oftentimes gets carried to extremes. Okay, so there are, unfortunately, uh, every few years there are uh, very tragic stories of shoppers, of children, of security guards, literally being stampeded to death, okay? Because of these shoppers wanting to get their last item on sale. It's pretty bad. Okay, so the next time you feel very, if you feel that like frustration rising up while you're riding that Korean bus, or riding that Korean subway, just, it's really important for us Americans to check our hearts, you know? Koreans might be really bad about this pushing and shoving, zero-sum mentality thing, but very rarely does it actually result in death, you know? So, just to keep, just... (laughs) I didn't mean for that to be funny, but okay. (laughs) No, there's grace. There's grace. Yeah, but just to keep just to keep it all in perspective, you know, we're not better than the other. We're all created in the image of God. But anyways, Amen. Okay, so I just wanted to contextualize a part of the scripture for you, and uh, if if you take a step back, and I want to encourage you to take a step back from the scenarios that I presented to you, you can realize that the one common root. Tying together all of these scenarios, right? The zero-sum mentality driving the mother of James and John. The zero-sum mentality driving the indignant disciples. The zero-sum mentality of the Ajumas. And basically all commuters in the city of Seoul. Okay? The zero-sum mentality driving the American shoppers on Black Friday. The one common root for all of these scenarios is the belief that an individual is in lack. That somebody is in lack. Okay? That there's a limited supply of something good, and therefore we must fight against everyone else to be able to get it. Okay? So, in the midst of all this that is happening, in the midst of the mom getting involved, all the disciples trying to fight as to who is going to get that coveted position, what is the response of Jesus? What's the response of Jesus? How does he respond to all these disciples falling into the zero-sum mentality? And according to which gospel account you read, uh, disciples can be found flipping out about who's the greatest—that uh, who's the greatest issue—not just once, but sometimes twice. Okay? So I'll read to you right now out of Luke 22. Actually, why don't you all turn to Luke 22 with me? Luke 22, verse 24. We're going to read from verse 24 to 28, and here we see a situation where the di- disciples start flipping out once again, but this time in the midst of the Lord's supper. Okay, so Luke chapter 22, verse 24 to 28. Is everyone there? Good. Okay, why don't we just read it out together? One, two, three. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table, or one who serves? is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I'll assign you, as the Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Amen. Okay, so this passage leads us very cleanly, very efficiently to point two. Okay, don't worry about getting a seat when God's prepared for you a kingdom. Don't worry about a seat when God has prepared for you a kingdom. Okay, so at this point, Jesus and the disciples they have made it into the city of Jerusalem. Okay. And back when Jesus and John's mom made her plea, uh, it was right before they had entered the city. Okay, but now they're finally in the city. And once again, just to remind the disciples, Jesus clarifies that soon he must suffer and be crucified. That he will be killed, but he will rise on the third day. He clarifies that for them one more time just in case they forgot. And Jesus is sharing a very precious moment. He's sharing a very precious moment with the disciples, and these are men into whom Jesus has sown in so much, so much time, so much love, so much prayers, okay? And they're basically about to partake in the bread and the wine, okay? we How many of you were here for communion last week, okay? So we all partook in the elements together, the crackers and the grape juice, representing um, sort of parallel to bread and wine, which therefore represents the body and the blood of Christ, okay? (laughs) Just to break it down. And they're about to partake in the bread and the wine together, which represents the body and the blood of Christ, um, which is soon to be offered up as a sacrifice, okay? And this is going to be a very powerful sacrifice for those of you who are familiar with the gospel. It is through the sacrifice of Christ, okay, that there is atonement for the sins of men. amen? Amen. And it is simultaneously, for those of you who are really big on, like, Old Testament history, this, like, this uh, Lord's Supper is actually a powerful moment, and spiritually, symbolically, physically also uh, alludes to the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt, because it's around the same time as Passover. So this is an event that is just, it's soaked with a lot of meaning. It's a very serious situation. It's like a ritual, and we're, they're reflecting on Jesus and what he has done and what he's going to do and what God has done since the days of the Jews in Egypt. It's a very powerful moment. Okay? And in the midst of this very powerful moment, talk arises of Jesus' betrayer being in their midst. Okay? That he says, Amongst you, there's one who's going to betray me. And What happens afterwards? Let's look at verse 24. I'll just read it out to you. A A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Okay? Once more, once more, the disciples are fighting amongst themselves again as to who's going to be the greatest. Okay? And... But this time, what is Jesus' response to what must have been a very frustrating scenario? Like, think about it. If you were in Jesus' shoes, like, can you imagine how frustrated you would be? Like, you've sown in your blood, sweat, and tears into these men. You've raised them up. They've performed beautiful, powerful miracles. You're about to be sacrificed for the sake of their sins and for the sins of mankind. And all they're worried about is, is who's the greatest. Okay? I can imagine it being extremely frustrating for Jesus. And, but what, how does he respond? I'll read to you from verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And I want you to focus on the next two verses. Okay, and then he emphasizes in verses 28 to 30, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so here Jesus shifts the focus of the disciples. Okay, Jesus shifts the focus of the disciples and he says, It's not worth fighting over two seats when in fact the Lord has prepared for you a kingdom. Okay, compare two seats to an entire kingdom. Okay, he says, Open your eyes and stop being so selfish. Right, there's a kingdom waiting ahead for you. The focus should not be on the positions that flank me, the focus should not be on the positions that flank Jesus, but rather the table, the table that he has prepared. Okay, and the disciples. And likewise, us as believers, right, we are not to be stuck in the mentality of the Gentiles, as mentioned in the scripture, okay? We are not to be stuck in the mentality of wanting positions of kingship just for the sake of security or for contentment or in order to, you know, lord our authority over others or boss people around. No, it is more important, it's a more important role for us as Christians, right, as followers of Christ, to do as mentioned in verse twenty-eight, to stay with Jesus, okay. To stay with Jesus in the midst of trials, okay. It is to st- it is by staying by His side through thick and thin. It is through investing in this relationship with Jesus that out of the natural flow, out of it is from the natural overflow of this that we are to be blessed by the kingdom that He has prepared, okay. It is out of the natural flow of this relationship with Jesus, being with Him through thick and thin, doing life with Lord, okay. So, I want to really clarify to you that for all of us in here today, that we must not have a distorted image of heaven. We must not have a distorted image of the blessings of God. Okay? And one thing to clarify, we are a Christian church. We're non-denominational. But I want to clarify, for example, that we are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay? So we do not believe that only 144,000 people will make it to heaven. No, that is not what we believe. Just because you get saved and you receive the blessing of the Lord, that doesn't cancel anybody else from receiving blessing as well. Okay? And I want to remind you uh, what is spoken to us in John chapter 14 verse 2 in the King James Version. And it says, in my father's house are many mansions. Okay, we're used to that song, In My House, There Are Many, Many Rooms. I think that's a VBS song. But in the King James Version, it says, In my father's house are many mansions. Okay? Yeah, come on. I want a mansion. I want a mansion in my father's house. It says, In my father's house are many mansions. If, if, If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Okay, I go to prepare a place for you. And to clarify, it's not even rooms that we're talking about here, but it's mansions. And it's not merely a seat, but it's an entire kingdom. Amen? Okay. So, now that we have some sort of good, solid, biblical understanding of what the Lord is trying to convey to us through the Scripture, right, how does this really play out in our daily lives? Okay? So, okay, I understand I have salvation or I'm exploring Christianity, whatever. I know that once I go to heaven, you know, there's... There's a mansion for me, me going to heaven, it doesn't cancel anybody else's blessing. I understand that in terms of scripture, but what does that mean in my everyday life? Okay. So, let me propose some scenarios to you. Okay, let me prepare, propose some scenarios to you. Uh, let's talk about the area of calling or career. Okay. So, for me, as Pastor Marcus had introduced, I serve as the missions director of New Philadelphia. So I oversee a lot of our our short-term trips that go out in the summer and the winter, and I'm able to visit the nations very frequently. It's a really amazing job, and one thing that many people comment when they see me is they say, "Man, Lisa, I feel like you are made for this position. Like it's so clear you are made for this job." But um, yeah, let me just let me give you some context, right? So from childhood, even before knowing Jesus to sort of prove why I was made for my job and why I love it so much. Okay, so from childhood, I've had a big heart for international politics, right? International relations and for history, diplomacy. And as a result of growing up Korean in America, actually, are there any any Koreans who grew up in America in this room, okay? How about Koreans who grew up elsewhere, okay? Or what about people who grew up in an environment where you were the minority, okay? So we have a lot of people who fall into these categories, right? So for those of you uh, who, for whom this was a story, you understand what it means to sort of straddle two cultures or two lifestyles or two languages, two vocabularies, you know? This is something that we're all familiar with, okay? And because of, so I grew up Korean in America, and specifically I grew up in New York City, okay? Anyone from New York City in here? No? Oh, wow, there's more than I thought. Praise God. Okay, nice, nice. Actually, side note, I, w- I was praying that the Lord would bring more New Yorkers to New Philly. Because I want New Yorkers in particular to be blessed by what's happening here. I want everybody to be blessed, but one day, I, you know, I want everybody to be blessed. No, I kid you not. But one day, I was just like riding the bus, and I said, Lord, it would be nice to have more New Yorkers in the house. So, you guys are an answer to my prayer, apparently. Anyways, okay, so, like I mentioned, I grew up Queen in America. I grew up in New York City. And because of these things, I like to consider myself pretty culturally aware, okay? Pretty culturally aware, pretty culturally adaptable. Uh, In undergrad, I studied political science and international relations. I I had a minor in conflict studies. And in grad school, I got a master's in international relations, right? So even just following all these traits, you could see, oh, okay, I can understand why Lisa is sort of qualified for the position that she has, right? And then I guess if you were to compare myself to other people who attend New Philadelphia Itaewon or New Philadelphia Hillside or Seaside, wherever, like there's no one else that quite has my resume, that quite has my background. So okay, of course, like Lisa, she's made for this position. But let's say one Sunday, let's say one Sunday, there's a newcomer, okay? <laughs> there's a newcomer, she's beautiful, she's gorgeous, right? Everything's perfect about her, whatever, and then let's say that she went to an even better school than I did, better ranking school, and then she had like a quadruple major, okay, she got travel scholarships to go all around the world, that she has the Bible memorized front and back, she is completely like quintilingual, right, and on top of that, her heart is burning for the nations, her heart is burning for the nations, and she's single, okay, oh man, oh man. So let's say if this newcomer, let's call her Miss Jane Doe, okay? Let's say homegirl Jane Doe came to New Philadelphia One next Sunday, okay? Let's say that she came. Would I respond in a zero-sum mentality? What does it mean to respond in a zero-sum mentality in these real-life situations, okay? So for me, upon meeting Jane Doe, would I feel insecure? Would I feel that her qualifications would rob me of my own opportunities, Okay? Would I feel that her attractiveness or her beauty or whatever would lessen my own chances of finding my mate? Mmm, right? Would I feel, (laughs) yikes, right? Would I feel, would I feel that as a result of her being so qualified that I would no longer be secure in my position or my job? Now I really want you to think about that for a moment. Okay, because this is a relatively small church community. Okay, we're all, we all pretty much stand out as individuals. There's only one Candace, only one Susie, one Egbert, whatever. But imagine a scenario where somebody who is very, very similar to you, and in the world's eyes, even more qualified than you, if they were to come to church, how would you respond? In the flesh, how would you respond? Okay, in the flesh, how would you respond? And this is where we get confronted with the reality of the zero-sum mentality. Right this is what something this is a mindset that very much has a stronghold over many people of the world and we see that manifest in so many different ways like i explained just now with the church scenario, right? Newcomer, homegirl, Jane Doe scenario, right? We see it manifest even in terms of what uh, the mother, James and John, how she approached Jesus. We see this manifest when we're taking public transportation in Korea. We see this manifest. Black Friday, Lord have mercy in America. We see this manifest in so many different ways. The deception, the fallacy, the complete deception and the fallacy that if somebody else is blessed... That if somebody else is blessed, that that is robbing me of my blessing. Okay, if somebody else is qualified, that, that automatically makes me unqualified. Okay, and I want as believers really to sort of uh, confront this issue straight on today, and which is why I really feel like the Lord was moving on my heart uh, with this message. And what I want to really exhort you all today regarding this whole zero-sum mentality, regarding uh, how to really confront this this zero sum mentality in our everyday lives as Christians or as, you know, exploring believers is I want to remind you that even though we are caught up in our earthly qualifications, we are caught up in our appearance, we are caught up in our resumes, you know, this is how the natural mind works. This is the way people think in the natural, but this is not how Jesus works. This is not how the kingdom of God works. Okay. And man, you might have heard this verse many times before, but it's very clear that man, by nature, we look at the outward appearance. But what does God look at? God looks at the heart, okay? And not only that, I want to really encourage you all to, in the midst of these scenarios, when you find yourself sort of being sucked into the 0 sum mentality, I want to remind you to not get so caught up in calculating lack, okay? We waste so much time, so much energy. We allow this to just... We waste so much of our lives calculating lack when in reality, God only has blessing in store for you, right? Why focus on the lack? Why waste your time focusing on the lack when the Lord has only blessing in store for you, okay? So I really encourage you today to really shift your mindset. Shift your mindset. And preaching to myself as I delivered this message as well. This is something that we all can afford to grow in as believers, as humans, okay? And I want to encourage you also, don't be stuck in a horizontal mindset as believers. Okay, don't be stuck in a horizontal mindset comparing yourself to others. You know, because for example, let me just bring, you know, the tried and true Facebook example. Okay, so I know that especially in this very wired age, especially with everyone and their smartphones, like uploading pictures of every single meal they eat in the best filter possible, whatever, you know? Like, I, I know what it's like, because I think, like, to be honest, when I was back in college, I was, like, the Facebook expert. My friends would sort of consult me and, and ask me how to comment on this and how to arrange this and how to present the best image of themselves through Facebook. It's really sad, right? I can't believe I just confessed that right now. Anyways, anyways... Oh okay, so but 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 hey in college I was really into Facebook. I was really into Facebook and I, I would think I was very fascinated with the idea that you could create like an altered image of yourself. Right? No matter how depressed you are, no matter how lonely you are, you can still project like a really bubbling, vivacious life on the internet. I thought that I found that so fascinating and I really wanted to man, manipulate it. Okay? <laughs> okay. But one thing that I've noticed um, as I get older is that you know Facebook is a very valuable tool and I do use it for ministry purposes and to catch up with people, but I've been a lot more guarded in terms of how I use it these days, especially with like, the advent of all these smartphones, especially with Instagram, especially with all these other features. Because I, I have a question, I have a proposal. Who here remembers when Facebook didn't have the like feature? Right? You remember? Who remembers when Facebook didn't have the comment feature? There was, actually a, a, there was actually a universe where Facebook didn't have like or comment, where people just posted stuff because they wanted to and they got over it, right? But how's, how do people approach Facebook these days? They, let's say that you, you and five friends, you go to a birthday party. You have so much fun, great food, the lighting is perfect, you take all these pictures. And You don't take only one picture. You take like six pictures, and you make it into wonderful like pick stitch. Okay, let's say, yo, check this out. Let's say you post up a really awesome, very deliberately created pick stitch on Facebook. Okay. And then another friend who is at the same event. So Pick Stitch, just to clarify, it's like uh, you're able to put like four different photos into one upload on Facebook. Okay? So let's say you uploaded this really awesome pic stitch, perfect, like filter, perfect, everything. And then one of your friends who is also at the same birthday party likewise uploads a pick stitch. Okay? At the end of the night, this girl, she has 24 likes, but you have 16. How do you feel? <laughs> That doesn't feel good, you know? Especially if you're rolling in the same social circle, how does that feel? That does not feel good, you know? But it's in situations just like that, that we must not get sucked into zero-sum mentality, amen? Amen, okay? Just cause your friends liked her pictures does that rob you of your own likes. And beyond that, beyond that, church, there's a life beyond likes and comments on Facebook, amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. I just wanted to get that off my chest. Very good. Oh, yes. So... I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you that truly, no matter what happy or borderline boastful update you might see on Facebook, don't let anything shake your own joy. Because remember, your friends being blessed, your friends having Jesus date at a cafe every single day, your friends having 200 likes on their photos every day, all that nonsense, them being blessed in that way is not robbing you of your own blessing. Okay, come on. Them being blessed is not robbing you of your own blessing. You sitting there comparing and being stuck in your zero-sum mentality, that is what is robbing your blessings. Okay? Very, very good. Excellent. Okay. Oh, man. I got got very zealous at the end of that message. But yeah, so that's basically what I want to really uh, share with you today. And it was something that the Lord is really impressing on my heart. It was really impressing on my heart about the importance of really stop, like not getting so caught up in how we are perceived by those around us, but focusing more of our attention on how the Lord perceives us, right? Not wasting so much energy, right, on how we compare to others, that hor- not being stuck in that horizontal mentality, but really being, I really wanted to exhort you and myself to focus again, to sort of recenter, refocus on the importance of that vertical mentality. Amen? Okay. So actually, why don't we just go into a time of prayer right now? I want us to, I know this is a really fun message, especially at the end, but I feel that there are some things that the Lord really wants to highlight.